I'm Kara Miller. This week on Innovation Hub, immigration has a long history. So does immigration policy. If you want to contrast 2018 presidential rhetoric about immigrants, you don't need to go to Obama or Reagan or Bush or Carter. You can go to Grover Cleveland. Then what's the effect of big companies buying little companies? Are they squashing an acorn before it can become an oak? Or are they actually taking a little oak with a good idea and spreading it rapidly through the whole economy because they have so much reach? And finally... New York isn't the only city trying to attract companies like Amazon. There's a bunch of really negative examples in the Kansas City area where often called the Kansas City border war where companies move back and forth across the Kansas and Missouri border and they're counted as a new investment. That's all coming up next on Innovation Hub. Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. Last spring, after the Trump administration started separating parents from their kids at the southern border, but before it got a lot of media attention, the president's chief of staff, John Kelly, said that such separation would be, in his words, a tough deterrent. In that same interview with NPR, he explained why deterrence was needed. And the key word here is assimilation. Let me step back. And, and tell you that the vast majority of the people that move illegally into the United States are not bad people. They're not criminals. They're not MS-13. But they're also not people that would easily assimilate into the United States. They're uh, overwhelmingly rural people. In the countries they come from, fourth, fifth, sixth grade educations are kind of the norm. Uh, they're coming here for a reason, and I sympathize with the reason. But the laws are the laws. And I should say that in the full transcript of the interview, he says, these people, quote, don't speak English, they don't integrate well, they don't have skills. That argument that these are not people who would assimilate well, it's been made for a long time. Indeed, it's why we have an immigration system, a system so massive and expensive you'd think it's always been around. But it hasn't. Just over a hundred years ago, a major commission came out with a slate of recommendations that essentially created the immigration system as we know it today, a system that decided to limit immigration through quotas. It was a commission created by President Teddy Roosevelt, who had some concerns about the large numbers of Eastern and Southern Europeans, Jews, Slavs, Italians, who had been coming in to the country. He was very concerned about this thing that folks call race suicide, right? That white Anglo-Saxon Protestant women's birth rate had been falling since 1790, basically, whereas new immigrants from Southern and Eastern Europe had high birth rates. Catherine Benton Cohen is the author of Inventing the Immigration Problem, the Dillingham Commission and its Legacy. And she says the original goal of immigration had been to populate this enormous country. And the debate has been, who shall we people it with? The Dillingham Commission, which was started in 1907 and headed up by Senator William Dillingham of Vermont, but stocked with lots of academic experts, decided to cast immigration not as a question or a discussion or a solution, but as a problem. And it wasn't just the commission that saw immigration as a problem. San Francisco had been hotly debating whether to segregate Japanese and white children in schools. A few decades before, in 1882, the Chinese had essentially been barred from entering the country. But before 1882 and the Chinese Exclusion Act, it's important to remember this. It took almost nothing to get into America. 
Though there had been clear discrimination against the Irish, not one federal law was passed restricting them from coming here. Indeed, the vast and the costly bureaucracy that now exists and that ramps up as our enforcement gets tougher, that didn't exist for the first hundred plus years of America's history. The quota system absolutely required a labyrinthine system of regulation that far exceeded anything previous, including that you got your visas in the quota era from your consulate, from the U.S. consulate overseas. So it actually spread the immigration bureaucracy-like tentacles into other countries. Ironically, for those coming across our southern and northern borders, the federal government essentially had an open-door policy for a long, long time. The United States did not even bother counting over land immigrants, so, you know, land migrants who were crossing land borders, until 1908. So to put that into context, my grandmother was five years old in 1908, and I'm not terribly ancient. The Border Patrol was not created until 1924. My grandmother was married by then, right? So this is literally just two generations away. I talked to Catherine Benton Cohen last spring as the country grappled with family separations at our southern border. She's an associate professor of history at Georgetown University, and she talked about living with the legacy of a world the Dillingham Commission helped create. But when I asked Benton Cohen if we've ever seen anything before that looks like this, it was a hard issue to grapple with. It is a very emotional question, and um, historians like to say that we're kind of allergic to making proclamations about the present day. Um, I'm not an expert on um, the history of children in migration, which is actually a kind of discrete scholarly topic. Mm -hmm. But in terms of the Dillingham Commission and the kinds of recommendations it made and the kinds of policies that people envision with respect to families, there was actually much more of an emphasis on wanting family migration as opposed to opposing it. And that's one thing that sort of strikes me here is, for example, the Dillingham Commission considered recommending, or it did recommend, barring single men from entry. Um, It ended up not doing that. Uh, The federal government did not pass a law like that. But that came out of the belief that assimilation was best achieved by families, Hmm. right? That, in fact, one of the threats that new immigrants, and that's what folks called those from Eastern and Southern Europe from the 1880s to the 1920s, those were the so-called new immigrants, that new immigrants were a threat in part because uh, many of those national groups were mostly male, the immigrants who came. In fact, the exception were Eastern European Jews, right, because they were fleeing violence and, and persecution. And they came as families, but Slavs and Italians and and, and uh, other Southern Europeans, those immigration streams were majority male. And that in itself was seen as a problem hmm. uh, by policymakers and by their sort of neighbors and civic leaders, because they believed that families were most likely to stay and assimilate. And they saw, in fact, women as kind of agents of assimilation. Mm-hmm. Um, so in that respect, this emphasis on breaking up families is actually quite different than the historical origins of immigration policy with respect to assimilation. If you were, let's say, arriving on a ship to Ellis Island before 1900, what did it take? What did you have to do? What did you have to show? And what was done to you to get into this country if you wanted to, like, be American, work in America? 
Well, first of all, you only could have come to Ellis Island for about eight years before uh, 1900. Ellis Island, which we think is this kind of like timeless emblem of United States immigration history, I like to say is literally a monument to federal immigration enforcement. But even at the height of the inspections at Ellis Island, they lasted around a minute unless you failed wow. a test. And in spite of the intense anxiety that they produced and in the many, many hundreds, maybe thousands of memoirs of immigrants or their children where they talk about the experience of Ellis Island, something like 98% of people passed. My husband's grandfather uh, was ill when he arrived at Ellis Island from Eastern Europe, and he stayed in a hospital on Ellis Island until he recovered, and Mm. then he was released to the rest of his family. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking with Catherine Benton Cohen, the author of the book, Inventing the Immigration Problem, the Dillingham Commission and its Legacy. You uh, make this point that uh, in the early 1900s, so exactly when this commission identified immigration as a problem, not a question, not a discussion, but like a problem and something that had to be solved, that almost 15 percent of the U.S. population was born outside the U.S. That's a number that had not been seen in the years before that. It has not been topped since then. I wonder how you think that affected things, the fact that we were at this like high in terms of the number of people born outside the U.S. in America? Great question. So I think it cuts both ways. And I think it's an understudied aspect of immigration policy. And I'll I'll say more about that as we move further into the 20th century. So one thing I'll say is that we probably would have exceeded that percentage. We came very close in the mid-2000s had it not been for the 2007-2008 recession. I think it's likely we would have met that. So what's important about that is to think that the, the last decade is a similar percentage of immigrants in the United States as to a century ago. So that's an interesting thing because we think of the early 20th century as a time of you know great immigration and, and we can see some parallels today, right? Right. But um, absolutely relevant because it concerned a lot of people. Not unlike today, there were many communities, uh, especially sort of obviously the New York cities and the Philadelphias, yes, the Chicago's, but also hundreds of small industrial communities, right? coal mining towns in West Virginia, iron and steel mining in Pennsylvania, copper mining in Montana and Arizona, um, glove factories in in the Hudson Valley, you name it, right, that had large pockets of new immigrants, right? So communities were changing, not unlike today. And so folks were, quote unquote, old stock Americans were confronting new kinds of neighbors, And I think the expansion of immigration outside of its kind of usual places has some parallels to today. So Mm -hmm. there was certainly that parallel. But let me let me say something about in contrast, as a consequence of the 1924 quota laws, almost all Southern and Eastern European immigration to the United States ceased And there was relatively little demand um, from Western and Northern Europe. So the large quotas for Western and Northern Europe usually didn't fill. Okay. During the Depression, uh, immigration went down everywhere anyway because people couldn't really move. They didn't have, you know, it was a worldwide depression. Right. Then World War II, which is a whole other topic, right, of 
immigration problems, which we should, I think, leave aside here. But what's interesting is that as a consequence, exactly as the lawmakers had hoped in the 1920s, the proportion of immigrants in the United States fell precipitously and reached its lowest levels by the early 1970s, which means that it was at historic lows in the single digits. Uh, In 1965, when the Hart-Seller Act passed, which was, of course, the law that made the quotas fair. In other words, gave... I'm putting fair in quotes here, by the way. Okay. Gave every nation in the United States the same quota and put Latin American countries under a quota system for the first time. Okay. And that was partly because um, by then the quota system was openly considered to be racist, right? That it favored some nations over others. But there's a way in which immigration had become nostalgic and abstract to many Americans because very few Americans were immigrants, quite frankly. So... Out of this commission, which thousands of pages of documents, years to put their work together, what were the recommendations that it came up with? And like, you know, how did this commission 100 years ago create in some ways the system we see today? couple of things. Uh, I like to say that the commission, I think, was one of the most successful government commissions ever convened because almost all of its Uh, recommendations were turned into law eventually. So um, its number one recommendation was a literacy test, asking immigrants to be literate in their own language. And by the way, that included Yiddish, which was interesting. So not as anti-Semitic as one might assume. Um, So that was one. The other really important one was that this was the first official recommendation for some sort of quota system. So to underscore to listeners that there was no numerical limit on immigration before the Emergency Quota Act of 1921. Um, We did not have numerical limits on immigration prior to the creation of a quota system in 21-24 So those laws were passed. It took a few years. The commission made its recommendations in 1911. But those two uh, major pieces became American law and became really the centerpiece of American immigration policy, particularly the quotas, because as it turned out, the literacy test didn't exclude very many people. A lot of people were did have the limited literacy required of the literacy test. Um, When. Uh, The Dillingham Commission said, um, we're going to call this the immigration problem. Did that shape, do you think, broadly how Americans started to think about immigration? I just wonder, like, what effect the commission had on ordinary folks. We've talked about government policy. How did they shape what ordinary folks thought about immigration? Well, reception is always one of the hardest things for historians to measure. But I do think that a consequence of this very authoritative report at a time when people believed in authority and expertise, right? So in some ways, the trust in this commission and their expertise seems quaint today, Mm -hmm. um, where, you know, we barely believe in facts, much less experts. I think it had tremendous influence. And the digest that uh, Jenks and Locke produced called The Immigration Problem went into five or six editions that were published and revised into the late 1920s. And you'll see the immigration problem referred to as such in rising numbers um, after 19, 
11. Mm -hmm. But I think the the thing that's key there is not just that immigration was a problem, but that it was a problem that federal policy must fix. Mm -hmm. And I I do want to underscore, we brought this up earlier, but I really want to underscore that this was new, that um, the literacy test had actually passed Congress in the 1890s. It had passed in 1913, right after um, the commission made its recommendations and President Taft had vetoed it. Cleveland had had vetoed it previously. And then Wilson vetoed it twice. And this was because um, presidents understood that it was bad diplomacy to call immigration a problem, to target certain national groups that might anger our diplomatic allies Mm. um, or stir up trouble. And also going to this point about a high percentage of Americans who were immigrants or their children, right? Because realize if 15% of the United States are immigrants, then a very large percentage are the children of immigrants, right? Right, right, right. right. Presidents also did not want to anger constituents, right? Many millions of whom were immigrants or their children. So the idea that immigration was a problem was um, potentially a a political and diplomatic uh, pitfall Mm -hmm. and also something that many Americans rejected. I mean, if you want to contrast 2018 presidential rhetoric... Uh, about immigrants. You don't need to go to Obama or Reagan or Bush or Carter. You can go to Grover Cleveland and and what he said about this being a nation of immigrants and immigrants helped build this country when he had a veto message about the literacy test. It's really quite moving. Catherine Benton Cohen is an associate professor of history at Georgetown University. She's also the author of Inventing the Immigration Problem, the Dillingham Commission and its Legacy. Catherine, thank you so much. Thank you. If you want to learn more about the invention of America's immigration system, you can head to our website, innovationhub.org. There we'll have more about the relatively short history of the Border Patrol and a link to an American Experience episode about the Chinese Exclusion Act. You're probably not that interested in the beer industry, unless you're in the beer industry. But even so, let me offer a tidbit about beer that gives us a clue as to something curious that's happening in the economy. Even though many of us have witnessed a boom in craft beer makers over the past couple of decades, this is the bottom line. A handful of beer companies control about 90% of the U.S. beer market. So what's happening to all those cute little companies? They're being squeezed out? or they're being bought up. And this is not just a beer story, according to David Wessel, who used to be the economics editor at the Wall Street Journal. If you have market power in your industry, you can raise prices and innovate less. Wessel is now a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution, and he notes that in 2008, the top four U.S. airline companies ate up about 40 cents of every dollar the industry made. Now, just 10 years later, the top airline companies, they don't eat up 40 cents anymore. They eat up more than 60 cents of every dollar. And this is happening mostly under the radar in all sorts of other areas, from pet food to pharmaceuticals. And if you work for these companies, you might be getting a raw deal. The share of income that's going to profits is up, and the share of income that's going to labor is down. Wessel, though, is not ready to say that increasing consolidation is a terrible thing. 
Because when Facebook, for example, buys a new and budding app or Anheuser-Busch scoops up a craft brewer that's super popular in Nevada, that purchase could have two very different effects. Are they squashing an acorn before it can become an oak? Or are they actually taking a little oak with a good idea and spreading it rapidly through the whole economy because they have so much reach? That's one that it's really a lot of discussion among economists is what's the right way to think about this. Wessel says the reason that this is happening now and in so many different areas is first, there have been a lot of mergers and not a lot of aggressiveness from the government in stopping them. Second, we find ourselves in a moment when being big is pretty great. Technology makes it much more efficient to have a big enterprise. That is, it's hard for a small enterprise to compete with a big one because the big one has such economies of scale. So technology can help a small company get big. Technology may make it impossible to be a small company. One area where this dynamic seems to have played out to the detriment of consumers is healthcare, where Wessel says that prices tend to spike in areas of the country with lots of hospital consolidation. Now, you might think that consolidating payroll in various hospitals and ordering Tylenol and bandages in bulk, that might allow hospitals to lower prices. Or at least, that's what you'd hope. That's not exactly what you get, says David Wessel. While healthcare is different than a lot of other services that we buy, it's not completely different. Mm -hmm. And when there is no competition, you tend to get, because the way people operate, these are often profit-seeking businesses or nonprofits that act like profit businesses, they charge as much as they can get away with. Right, right. And let's say there's a big employer in a town. They buy health insurance for their employees, and their health insurer is negotiating a network. And they give lower prices to the to get the business from this employer, right. the hospital will give lower prices. And uh, without the pressure of competition, the employer or its health insurance company simply has no leverage. Mm -hmm. If there's only one hospital in town, that's the one that people go to. I grew up in New Haven, Connecticut. There were two hospitals, one owned by Yale, one by St. Raphael's, uh, a Catholic chain. They merged. And as soon as they merged, all the prices at St. Raphael's went up to the level that Yale charged. Hmm. So if we thought we could force efficiencies, if we were convinced that consolidation would create more efficient or better health care, and that would show up either in lower prices or in better, uh, you know, mortality and morbidity things, then we wouldn't have a problem. From my reading of the evidence, and there's quite a bit of debate about this, the hospital consolidation has not proved to promote efficiencies. It's proved to promote higher prices. Do you have a sense that... On a routine basis, companies are using their power, their increasing power by being at the top and capturing more and more share of the business to quash little competitors that could, you know, take, take some of the industry away from them. Right. So it's circumstantial evidence. It's okay. like you're putting together all these pieces right. and you say, is this compelling? I find it compelling, but there's a lot of debate. So... There are two things going on which make you worry about this. One is, if businesses get really big and they dominate their industry, then they don't have to invest a lot to innovate to head off competition. Right, right. So we did, until very recently, see disappointing levels of business investment. 
and some academic research looks at business investments in concentrated industries versus others and sees a pattern there. So that would be worrisome. That suggests that they don't fear competition, so therefore they don't invest, which therefore we don't get the benefits of innovation Mm. or productivity improvements that would be forced if there was more competition. Mm. Another thing that people look at with a great deal of alarm is the shrinking number of new businesses formed in the country. And that's another way of asking, is the economy becoming less dynamic? Right. And one possible explanation is that we're getting fewer new businesses formed because they just know they're not going to make it. There's a really interesting little side argument here, one which I have a hard time making up my mind about. You know, Facebook and Google are incredibly aggressive at buying little companies. Hmm. They buy them as acorns before they can grow up to be oaks. Right. And so some people look at this and say, well, we'll never find out if there's a better Facebook or a better Amazon because anybody who starts to seem a little bit successful, they get bought up. Right. Whatever good idea they have is incorporated into the big product. All right. So here's the question. Does that give more or less incentive for people to start one of these new companies? On one hand, you're not going to become Mark Zuckerberg right. or Bill Gates right. or Steve Jobs. So that could be a downer. Instead, I'll you know do something else. On the other hand, now you know if you have like halfway decent product and you get a few million <laughs> users, right. you don't have to wait for 10 years to do an IPO. You can just sell for $3 billion right. to Apple or Google or Facebook. I was going to say you could even make less. I mean, you could maybe make $30 million and, okay, well, maybe you're done with that product. But you've got $30 million, exactly. which you could plow into something new or you could just be rich or whatever. Right. So it's not – It's not the thing that makes this all so interesting is while some people, including some uh, Democrats in Congress – Big is bad. we got to break up these companies. When you look closely, there's something going on that's worrisome. Mm -hmm. There's less competition, and that's providing less innovation and less productivity growth. But it's not simple enough to say all mergers should be defeated, everybody's bad. And I should say, this is a real live issue. Right now, the government's going to have to decide whether to go from four cell phone companies to three, this Mm -hmm. Sprint T-Mobile merger. And this is the kind of issue that people are grappling with now in real time. It's not just some academic exercise. I'm Kara Miller. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm talking with David Wessel, a senior fellow in economic studies at the Brookings Institution. He's the author of the recent Harvard Business Review article, Is Lack of Competition Strangling the U.S. Economy? We will link to it at our website, innovationhub.org. Can you think of an industry or a company where... You felt like there was some sort of active quashing of like, no, this is an interesting craft beer, you know, craft brewery. I'll snap this up and then they won't be my competition anymore. Well, what happens in beer, I think, is there are a lot of craft breweries. Right. But when you look, a lot of them are partly owned by the big guys. Hmm. So they're finding a way to it's almost a marketing thing. I know everybody doesn't like to buy something that says Budweiser or Anheuser-Busch or Michelob. Right. So I'll invest in these little things, and you, then we decide. I mean, there is some evidence from antitrust trials that prices go up, have gone up for beer as a result of this. I think one of the most interesting is, is pharmaceuticals, mm-hmm. where companies, the big companies, have been very aggressive at trying to prevent price competition for drugs. One of the ones that's most frustrating in the the Food and Drug Administration is trying to deal with this now, goes something like this. I make a product. 
it's no longer protected on patent. Yeah. So what's supposed to happen is a generic maker can make it. Right. And then for way the cheaper. Price, for way cheaper. For way cheaper. Right. And that pushes down the price and we all live happily ever after. Mm-hmm. Some drugs have particularly bad side effects. So the government has said, if you make this drug that has particularly bad side effects, like it might cause birth defects if someone takes us pregnant, mm-hmm. we want to have a very restrictive uh, system of distribution so that it's not inadvertently given to somebody and it'll have bad effects, but we still want it to be used where appropriate. Okay. So some of the makers of these drugs have told the generic companies, well, I'm sorry, but because of the government, we can't let you have a sample of this drug because it's on this restricted distribution thing, and if we give it to you, you know, you might by inadvertently use it on some pregnant woman. Well, without the sample, they can't come up with a generic. So there's all sorts of games that are being played hmm. by big pharma to kind of discourage competition. It's getting increasing amounts of attention. You know, we commissioned a paper by an economist at Yale, uh, Fiona Scott Morton, Morton, and she had like 20 things that were going on in the drug industry where big pharma was stomping on competition, and she was encouraging the Federal Trade Commission and the Food and Drug Administration to act. Do you think that in aggregate, when you step back and you look at from hospital chains to airline tickets to pet food to beer, do you think that consumers are paying higher prices because of this phenomenon where in all sorts of industries, the few big companies are getting bigger and bigger slices of the pie in the last 10, 20, 30 years? Given how little inflation there's been lately, it's really hard to make the argument that somehow prices are skyrocketing because of this concentration. So I'm more worried that it's not now raising prices, but it threatens to raise prices in the future, and we're getting fewer innovations and less productivity growth than we would if we had more competition. Okay. What's it doing to wages? Because if you work, for example, in the airline industry, um, and and the power is increasingly being consolidated, you may have fewer and fewer choices about where you work, and it means nobody has to pay you a particularly competitive wage because, like, you don't have a lot of choices. Well, one of the things when I looked across the economy that really leaps out at you is – the growing body of research that suggests that something is going on in the labor market that is similar to what we're going on in the product and service markets. Okay. That is, increasingly in some industries and in some communities, there are fewer employers and the big employers dominate. Okay. And there is a growing body of evidence that this is reducing wages. That is, like there's a, uh, some economists uh, who recently did a paper and they used uh, data from the website Career Builder, and they looked at over 8,000 local labor markets, and they basically said where there has been an increase in the fraction of people working for big employers in that community, wages are lower. Huh. When did things start to change? Like, how did we get to a place where we have the top companies in so many industries eating such a big piece of the pie uh, and leaving so little else for other companies. And that was not necessarily true. It was much less true a generation ago. How did this happen in the last generation? Well, you're right. And I think that it reflects two different things. One is this mindset on antitrust, which meant fewer mergers were opposed. That began really in the 80s. 
And then the second thing is the how much technology has evolved. And so, you know, think about how much bigger Facebook, Google, Amazon are today than they were in 2000. That's just an illustration of how technology has allowed some companies to get really big and claim a big part of the market. Do you feel like this trend is going to continue, that that we are now on this trajectory where it's hard to slow down the big companies from getting even bigger? I think it will continue until there's a political reaction that says enough is enough. Right. And so we see, for instance, the Trump administration is fighting a merger of AT&T and Time Warner. And that's not a merger of two companies that are in the same business trying to get a bigger market share. It's what they call a vertical merger. And the government is arguing, apparently in court from the press accounts without much success, that if you allow a content company and a pipeline company to merge, they'll have too much power. So they're testing the limits of that. I think whether the government decides to object to the T-Mobile and Sprint merger is a really significant thing. Okay. But I think over time, it, it'll. yes, I think it will change, but I don't think it's going to change anytime soon because it's so hard to stand up against the forces of technology, and it's so hard to change the case law on antitrust, and it's so hard to change the mindset. A different presidential administration might come in with kind of a coherent strategy. We want to promote competition. But in the current environment, it seems to be we want to get rid of regulation, Hmm. whether they're pro-competitive or not. David Wessel is a senior fellow in economic studies at the Brookings Institution. He's also author of the recent Harvard Business Review article, Is Lack of Competition Strangling the U.S. Economy? We will link to it at our website, innovationhub.org. David, thank you so much. You're welcome. Also at our website, we'll link to an interview I did a couple of years back about how mergers may have particularly hurt the Midwest. It's a conversation that has stuck in my head and that makes a compelling case about how consolidation has reshaped communities. November, Amazon revealed the locations of its new headquarters, Crystal City, Virginia, and Long Island City, New York. There was, of course, a lot of griping in the aftermath of that decision about whether Amazon gamed the system by getting mounds of tax breaks and other sweeteners offered to them from cities around the country. Nathan Jensen, a professor of government at the University of Texas, Austin, says it's important to remember this isn't just a story about Amazon, it's a story about misguided government. I talked to him before Amazon made its decision, but he said the date is clear. Offering companies tons of tax breaks to get them to locate in your area, that doesn't really make sense. He offered his home state, Wisconsin, as an example. It put billions on the table for the Taiwanese manufacturer, Foxconn. And Wisconsin's actually in a very difficult position right now that there's a declining funding for education. The UW, University of Wisconsin system, is under fire. Some of the liberal arts majors are being canceled at University of Wisconsin-Stevens Point. So you see this state that, I mean, literally struggling with education financing, which is one of the clear benefits of why you'd want to go to Wisconsin in the first place. At the same time, you know, subsidizing Foxconn, which was $3 billion, but the estimates are now about $4.5 billion dollars. 
um, in subsidies for Foxconn. Jensen is a co-author of the book Incentives to Pander, How Politicians Use Corporate Welfare for Political Gain. He has studied what happens when companies are offered lavish packages to come to town. It's what he calls the winner's curse, which Jensen explains this way. Well, I think the best example are the Winter Olympics, that mm-hmm. if you, you can attract the Olympics with enough money in small town in Russia, for example, with enough billions of incentives, but it's not clear that that's a good economic development strategy. So on, on one hand, you know, the question of any of these incentive offers, are they actually coming because of the incentives? Or are they coming because of the workforce, the location, the quality of the existing infrastructure? So you might be giving money for something that's coming anyways. And then the second part is just the costs are enormous. And often there's tax incentives. So you're basically cannibalizing your future tax base. Mm. At the time where you have workers moving into town, you have expansion demands and the schools are going up at the same time. It's difficult to finance it. So what you're saying is like, you're like, gee, we've got all these new workers. We need another elementary school. Um, Or there's so many people stressing the roads. We got to fill in some more potholes or reinforce that bridge because it's kind of a mess. And that company, call it Amazon, but this can be true of other companies too, like they're not paying very many taxes. So you can't use their taxes to build the elementary school or rebuild the bridge. I think that's exactly it. And and often these incentive programs, the biggest critics are school districts or education associations that Hmm. they see that this really does cannibalize often because it's the local taxes that are being abated which go to the schools at the time when there's an increasing demand for, again, building schools, more teachers. This is one of the big opponents of many of these incentive programs. Can you give an example of a city, a state that offered an incentive to a company to come? And then kind of as you were talking about before, winning and somehow turned into uh, losing in a sense. Yeah, there's a there's a few stories in North uh, in North Carolina, a small um, city that attracted, um, I, I believe it was Amazon data center, and this data center, you know, was the promise of generating jobs and mm-hmm. capital investment. But you know, for the most part, these data centers, I mean, they're capital investment. It sounds great, but it's just servers sitting on a piece of land. It's not really generating any other economic development. Most of the engineers are flying in from you know, the headquarters or from other parts of the country. Hmm. There's not that many jobs being created. So you're kind of carving out this in the middle of nowhere, a data center that has really very little positive impact. But then there's some demands for more power, for more water. Um, And it's one of these classic examples that, boy, it, it sure doesn't seem to have had any positive impact on economic development. There's also stories um, like Discovery Communications in Silver Spring, Maryland. They've just decided to move their company. So you also, you know, have these investments in incentives with this belief that in the long run it'll pay out. For these companies, you know, many companies go bankrupt, many companies change their strategies, they move. So if you're banking on a return 25 years down the road, and this is one of the Texas Economic Development Programs, they want to make sure it pays back within 25 years. That's a pretty long time horizon just at upfront to figure out whether or not it makes sense. I have a newborn, a seven-month, uh, eight-month-old little daughter, so it's like she'll graduate college and finish law school and we'll <laughs> right, finally right, right. be breaking even. Right. That's a long time horizon. When were you saying about Discovery that they moved to Silver Spring, like they got incentives, but now they're leaving? Yeah, and, and there's, a, there's quite a few of these examples. There's a bunch of really negative examples in the Kansas City area where often called the Kansas City border war where companies move back and forth 
across the Kansas and Missouri border, and they're counted as a new investment, even though the workers probably aren't moving. There's no real change in impact in Kansas. You know, you move four miles one direction, sure, you cross the border. Right. But it's not going to clearly have any other different economic impacts. So then Kansas City is a pretty clear example of, you know, just shifting back and forth, just companies maximizing their their tax benefits. I want to stay on that for a minute because you do talk in your book about this war between Kansas City, Missouri and Kansas City, Kansas, which, as you say, close together. But there's this huge, at least there was this huge sort of war over like throwing incentives at companies to get them to move from one Kansas City to the other Kansas City. And you tell the story of Applebee's. Uh, do you want to tell, like, what happened with Applebee's, the corporate headquarters of Applebee's? You know, in some sense, you, there's a lot of finger pointing in Missouri and Kansas. Who started it? Um, you often hear them talk to each other like it's World War One. They talk about, <laughs> we'll disarm if you disarm. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's Applebee's moving across the border and then moving back, right. getting new incentives for a small, you know, 20-mile move. I don't, I don't remember the exact distance. But, you know, we've seen quite a bit of that. And and there's a foundation in the Kansas City area. This Hallmark is one of the big companies, the Hall Family Foundation, where they've documented the amount of companies that have gone back and forth hmm. across the border. And, and the net impact is basically just shifting the deck chairs around, right. but no real new economic development. Right, right. And, and the amazing thing about Applebee's, I'll just say, is they made a move uh, from one Kansas City to the other Kansas City, got a cash in all these incentives, and then not that long later, they cut a whole bunch of jobs and moved to, like, basically the L.A. area. Yeah. Like, yeah. they were like, I mean, thank you very much for your money, and now we're moving. You know, and that tells you something about these firm strategies. I mean, their location decisions actually aren't all about the incentives. Of course, if you're in the Kansas City area, you can play this game shifting back and forth across the border. There's some economic development consultants that will look for lease expiration. So your lease is expiring in Kansas City, Kansas. We'll call you up and say, you can move to Kansas City, Missouri, and we can get you incentives. You know, we'll take a third of them, but you'll get the other two-thirds. But in Applebee's case... They were consolidating their national operations, and it made economic sense for them to move to California. So despite all these kind of lucrative incentives, when it really became a business case, they moved to the L.A. area. And I think this is the other great example that often these big incentives, even when they're really, really large, they're nothing compared to the geographic reasons to to locate somewhere, the human capital reasons. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So in some sense, we're playing this really expensive game that might not really even shift that much investment. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking with Nathan Jensen, a professor at the University of Texas at Austin. He's the co-author of the book Incentives to Pander, How Politicians Use Corporate Welfare for Political Gain. Can you possibly take politics out of it and, like, align the incentives of the politicians and the public? Because right now, politicians generally stay in office, like, four years, eight years, maybe 12 years. That's not very long, whereas... The public may live in, you know, Wisconsin or wherever for a long time. Um, They have to deal with things 20 years down the road. Is there any way to, like, align those incentives or or just take politics out of it completely? I mean, the United States is interesting because many other countries offer their incentives at the national level. Okay. So you don't see this competition locally. 
And then in many countries in Europe in particular, the European Union limits the amount of state aid that can be provided. So there's in some places there's limitations mm -hmm. knowing that politicians are going to want to do this. But after that, it's difficult to see exactly why a um, politician would give up this lever. Because for the most part, although sometimes when the scale gets so large, there's a backlash, but the smaller incentives, voters seem to think that they're pivotal in attracting companies. So a politician offers an incentive, a company comes, they have a ribbon-cutting ceremony, and they take credit for it. Yeah. So the political incentives aren't just the time horizon. Um, it's the idea that you need something really public that shows you're generating jobs, right. and there's nothing really more public than this. Right, and they're respond. You're saying politicians are doing this because they're responding to what voters want. And that's what we, we talk about pandering in our book, that voters think these things matter. Mm -hmm. And in some sense, that makes them more willing, at least without any context, when they don't think about the trade-offs. If you actually talk about the trade-offs and education funding, whoa, voters start to shift more and saying maybe these incentive programs aren't a good thing. But if you can control the rhetoric, yeah, they're pretty popular. Right. Is there a way of crafting bids that is fairer, that results in something better, that does not result in no taxes coming into the city, that sort of thing. Is there a way of setting this up in a better way? Yeah, I mean, I think there are a couple simple ideas, and especially if, if we're just realistic that many of these states and cities aren't going to give up these programs completely, how do we make them more effective? One simple way is you know, New Jersey offered, I believe it was 45 to 50 years of tax abatements that's a crazy time horizon for two reasons. One, I mean, that's future politicians are going to be paying for this. Uh, but secondly, most analysis of firms' decisions is that they actually have pretty short time horizons, hmm. that their discount rate. So, so what's the value of a tax break right. today is high. What's it tomorrow? Less, 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 less. These discount rates are so, so high that basically an abatement after five years is not really going to offer anything of value to the company at the time of the decision, meaning cap abatements or tax limitations, benefits for five years. Okay. And that's a simple, simple change that would dramatically reduce the cost of some of these programs. Right, right. It's interesting, too, because we talked about how politicians are not in office forever. Well, neither are CEOs, right? No, so they're probably right. not like, hmm, I wonder what our tax situation is going to be like in 30 years. You know, that's not their concern right now. It's probably like next quarter on Wall Street is much more their concern. Yeah, and, and this is the irony about these programs to some extent. You know, the thing that would be most valuable to these companies would be cash up front. Literally give us a cash grant. And, and a number of states <laughs> yeah. have what right. are called deal-closing funds. They do offer right. cash. Right. But the big dollar amount is often tax abatements because it's easier for politicians to give that. You don't have to get a budget allocation of money and hand it to the company. What you do is you just forgive their taxes. And in some ways, you don't even have to report how large these abatements are. Right. So the preferred political form of giving to firms is actually the least efficient um, in terms of swinging a firm decision. So I know it sounds odd, but if you're going to give an incentive, then give cash. Okay. And if you can't afford cash, you can't afford a tax abatement. <laughs> but the smartest one for the city, if people can swallow it politically, is give them cash. Give them, give them, uh, ironically, give them cash. Yeah. Or give them something 
that's a value to the whole community. For example, workforce training. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a number of right. workforce training programs that, you know, even if the company leaves after five years, you've invested in your community workforce uh, in a way or, or some infrastructure. The problem is a lot of the infrastructure is often very much dedicated towards mm-hmm. the company, like you're literally building a road to the new company headquarters. But if you're expanding your power grid, you're expanding your highway system, you know, that may be an investment that's worthwhile independent of the company. So it's kind of a double benefit. That's the sort of thing that if the company wasn't there, would you be interested in investing in this? And, right. and if the answer is a yes, then that's a better than giving these tax abatements. I talked to Nathan Jensen last spring. He's a co-author of the book Incentives to Pander, How Politicians Use Corporate Welfare for Political Gain. And he's a professor in the Department of Government at the University of Texas, Austin. If you want to get his take on Amazon's decision to put their second headquarters in New York and Virginia, head to our website where we will link to an essay he wrote in the Wall Street Journal. His view probably is not going to surprise you, but you will learn that Alexander Hamilton got some tax breaks back in 1791 to help out Patterson, New Jersey. That's at innovationhub.org. Thanks to the people who helped put together this show. Senior producer Elizabeth Ross, producer Mark Solinger, associate producer Mark Filipino, and engineer Doug Sugertz. We also had production help from Isil Kibbe and Wen Lei. From PRI and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. PRI, Public Radio International.